It was a great experience to learn the impact of high fidelity simulation, very, very meaningful, impactful feedback for improvement and the ability to then validate your hospital, your care delivery team and how you do it in such a way you have tremendous confidence when you actually get to do the real thing. I mean, the day you show up at Bastion Roll 3, you're essentially ready to do mass casualties. Welcome to War Docs, the military medicine podcast. This show brings you a firsthand behind the scenes look into the mission, unique opportunities, and deployed experiences of the entire military healthcare team. From state of the art hospitals in the United States to the most austere environments across the globe, War Docs has you covered. On this episode, we're privileged to welcome Army Colonel Dr. Jeremy Pamplin to Wardox. Dr. Pamplin is a critical care physician currently serving as the commander of TATRIC, the Telemedicine Advanced Technology Research Center. Dr. Pamplin trained in internal medicine and completed a fellowship in critical care medicine at Walter Reed. He has completed combat deployments to both Iraq and Afghanistan. You can read his full bio at wardoxpodcast.com. In this episode, Dr. Pamplin discusses how medical providers should think about telemedicine and advanced technologies and how they can be utilized in the future. He describes how new innovations can significantly expand the capacity and capabilities of care delivered on the battlefield or in other resource-limited environments, such as that presented by the COVID pandemic. I'm your host, Dr. Doug Soderdahl, retired Army urologist, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Dr. Wayne Causey, active duty vascular surgeon. Today, we're privileged to welcome Army Colonel and critical care physician, Dr. Jeremy Pamplin to Wardox. Jeremy, thanks for joining us today. Thanks, Doug. I really appreciate you having me on the podcast, and it's quite an honor to be here. Thank you. Dr. Pamplin, tell us what motivated you to join the military and attend West Point and the Uniformed Services University of the Health Sciences, UCHES. It's not a terribly glorious story, but the, the apple did not fall terribly far from the tree. My dad was an internal medicine doc who did a residency at Walter Reed Army Medical Center and then went on to do clinical research, primarily in clinical pharmacology and worked at Rare and then had a lifelong career ending at the closure of Letterman back in the 90s. And it was there in San Francisco where I started having a love of actually sports and soccer in this circumstance. And I was fortunate enough to be recruited by West Point. And that's really how the West Point journey began. It began with a phone call from a coach that said, hey, you want to come out and take a look at the academy? And I said, sure, that sounds like a great idea. And once I got there and, and kind of saw the one of their mottos, which is much of the history that we teach was made by the people we taught, I was hooked. And in many ways, I think that's still the story that you all are telling now, the, uh, the history of all of military medicine. It's the, the military does some amazing things for our society and has a great history lesson for all. And then the story of getting into medicine and to USIS was uh, our USU Uniform Services University was a little bit more, I guess, challenging. I was very conflicted after being brainwashed for three, almost four years at the academy, thinking that I really wanted to go into combat arms. The need to do something to give back to the military was paramount in my psyche at that point in time. And I was fortunate to have some friends around me that really kind of said, you know, why, why do you want to go into doing just playing combat arms? Why do you want to be going to do a tanker? And one of my best friends at the time, who was a roommate, said, Jer, I wouldn't want nothing more than if I'm injured to be able to wake up and see you standing over me because I know I'd be safe. And then I had a tactical officer that was at West Point that said, teach anyone to blow things up. But it's the, the rare individual that comes through here that 
we can teach to actually put people back together again. And those two kind of pivotal moments for me really kind of sealed the deal of maybe I should try on the try on the white coat, so to speak, and, and try on this medicine thing. I always had an inclination to, to kind of like uh, physiology and medicine, probably because of my background, my dad, but it was really Pete Twiddell, who's my roommate and my tactical officer that said, hey, and that changed my mind. That made me kind of go in the direction of medical school. So you did follow in the footsteps of your father and trained in internal medicine at Eisenhower Army Medical Center, and then decided to do a fellowship in critical care medicine at Walter Reed. What made you seek that additional training in critical care? So critical care has always been a love of mine. I think my very first rotation in residency and as an intern was in the intensive care unit with one of your actual prior podcast interviewees, Kevin Chung, who was my senior resident at the time. And the intensive care unit in many ways is the final place that all patients who are really, really sick end up. All other all other specialties funnel into an intensive care unit when they're up against the wall and there's not much more that they can do for them in other environments. The patients end up in the intensive care unit and having that responsibility of not just helping the patients, but helping the clinicians who are looking for resources, looking for last ditch effort, looking for a solution that they can't come up with on their, you know, outside of that type of an intensive environment was always just very, I guess, appealing to me. And I, I think the other part about the intensive care unit is many ways it's a physiology lab. You get immediate feedback and the ability to perturbate the system and to poke at it and to try to optimize the the things that you can affect to allow a, a patient to have the best possible chance of having a good outcome is just a very rewarding in many ways. I think in the intensive care, it brings you very close to your own kind of mortality and these really deep interactions that you have with not just the patients, but with their families. And what you start to realize is that, you know, life is very fragile. And you start to understand that how you take care of the patients really needs to include the families in order to get the best possible outcome, not just for the patients, but for that that team of teams. And that team of teams includes that family member. And that family member, oftentimes, we unfortunately are not successful in intensive care units and, and people die, which is just part of life. We all will get there at some point in time. But the way that we take care of a family member in those kind of last moments really can affect that family member or that family's in general life for the, for the rest of their life. And it's not just the family members. Sometimes it's actually the caregivers as well. We, we get very attached to patients, rightly so. And sometimes it's our team of, of caregivers um, that, that struggle in those, those moments when we just aren't sure if we're doing the right thing or we're trying to figure out whether or not we should let this person go because we've done all the right things and, and they're getting sick and they're, they're in the process of dying despite what we've done. And those very human conversations were and still continue to be very, I think, important to me because if you do them well, then caregivers, I think, burn out less. They have less challenges with things like PTSD. They have less challenges with regret. And it's really helping people, caregivers, patients, and family members kind of get through some of those challenges that I I think have always attracted me to critical care and end of life kind of challenges. One year after finishing your fellowship in 2008, you were deployed to even seen a hospital in Baghdad, Iraq. Do you have any memorable cases from that deployment? And what was the role of a critical care physician at that time? It's always hard to kind of pinpoint things on one specific case and try to pull together Everything that you learn during those deployments, I think Art Kellerman and, and Eric Elster said it right when they called it the crucible. It's this 
this intense learning environment. It's not just about the patient care. You have to learn every single day that you're in some of those, those places because the care that you provide is always constrained by something. It's always different than you do than what you might do in, in a real tertiary care medical center in the United States. Even if you have all the resources available to you in some of those locations, what you finally end up doing is oftentimes altered by the operational tempo, the need to move patients quickly, the reality that more patients are coming or that you really only have a certain amount of, of X, whether it's a medication or a blood product or whatever it may be. So it's, a, it's an intense learning environment. I learned so many lessons on that first deployment that were both humbling and impactful. But I think when I reflected about this question, there is a case that stands out the most for me. And, it, and it, it's not just because it involves a sick patient. It's also because it involves a really compassionate care team and um, had a patient, I'll, I'll just call him Nick. And he was, he was a tanker. So he was the kind of guy that I thought I might want to be at one point in time. And his tank was struck by improvised explosive device and caught on fire. And he was a larger individual just by body mass. He was wide and it took him a while to get out of the tank. And he was actually the last guy out because he helped his other tank crew out of, out of the vehicle. And in that process, he, he had severe damage to both of his lower extremities. And he came into the hospital, obviously very depleted on blood because he had, had bilateral lower extremity amputations. He came in obviously with tourniquets. One of his legs was, I guess, not fully amputated. And, and there was some consideration that we could actually save it. And the first operation he had removed the remnants of the one leg. And then there was attempts by one of my uh, good friends, Jason Johnson, to try to save the other leg. And over the next course of the next 12, maybe 16 or so hours, this guy just continued to get worse. And we had these care discussions around his bedside, both with Jason and the nursing staff and some of the other surgeons and myself and Matt Heeman, who was the other cardiology critical care doc that was there. And we, we were collectively trying to decide, do we take this person's other leg because of all the morbidity that comes along with that for the rest of their life? Do we, do we try to preserve this person's single leg? Because one leg is better than, than no legs. And ultimately, he was just getting so sick, we, we collectively decided the right thing to do is just take his leg. And what happened after that is he woke up because the physiologic demand of having a dead leg was really making him really sick. And he woke up after that. He started writing us notes and little letters. And we, I still keep them. And he said, you know, number one, how are, first thing, question out of his mouth was, how are, my other, how are my other buddies? How are the buddies that were in the tank with me? And we were able to tell him that they were okay. So he was very relieved by that. He was joking on the piece of paper. And then he asked about his legs and we said, they're gone. He said, that's no big deal. I've got a big heart and I got a good family. We're going to be okay. And to this day, he came home from that deployment. And, and we always worry as, as clinicians, are we doing the right thing? Are we creating a life for this, this person that is going to be miserable if we, if we do these things to him? And this, this lesson will repeat itself many times in the burn center as well. We never know as clinicians what that individual's will to live may be and what their quality of life will be after we engage with them and after we treat them as best we can. And oftentimes their will to live, if they get through it, they are happy long-term. And Nick has subsequently come home. He is without legs now. He usually doesn't use his, his stubbies or any of his prostheses. He is married. He has three kids and he is having a great life. And how would we have known that? How would we have known that the, the life that he was going to live was going to be so wonderful at that moment in time? And if we had ever given up on him or if we had tried 
to, to preserve a leg and he had died. The goal to achieve life in many of these circumstances at almost extreme measures is, I think, still a valuable ethos that we carry with us in the, in the military for our military, our active duty wounded. And it's incredibly important that we continue to do that into the future. So you have somewhat of a unique perspective in that five years later, you were deployed to Camp Bastion in Helmand province, Afghanistan, and you were working with the United Kingdom Field Hospital. So you got an opportunity to work with coalition partners. You got a chance to be deployed to a different country and it's five years later. So first, tell us a little bit about working with the coalition partners and then what had really changed in those five years in medical care? Yeah, so there's many good stories being told from this second deployment, both from a a patient care perspective and from a leadership perspective. The biggest things that changed in this circumstance, one is we were with a British hospital and they do things very differently than, than, than U.S. hospitals do. The second one really was the way that we transfuse patients. And that's probably the easiest one to, to kind of mention. In those five years, we realized that Chris Lloyd was really bad for traumatic injuries. And uh, our, my first deployment, there were multiple patients that we essentially lost because of Kool-Aid blood. It's this kind of pink liquid that comes out of the body out of any place that is nicked or any place that has a, even a small injury and certainly out of any surgical wound. And it just doesn't stop. It just leaks out. It's like water. It's like literally like Kool-Aid and it doesn't clot. And we would have people that came out of the OR on that first deployment with hemoglobins of seven, maybe six sometimes. And, and oftentimes they would have the same Kool-Aid blood. And an hour later, the hemoglobin would be five, despite another five or six units of blood. On the second deployment, they would come out of the OR with hemoglobins literally of 13, 14, 15 sometimes, almost overshooting what we would imagine as being normal. And and they were totally hemostatic. They were rock steady on their vital signs, and they they all lived. I mean, these horrible traumatic injuries, as long as you can get the blood back into them and they could stop the bleeding, they were living. And that was the biggest difference that I saw from deployment number one to deployment number two from a medical standpoint. I think the other part that was actually really important in deployment number two is also our clinical practice guidelines. So between 2008, when I think we had maybe one, we certainly had one, it was the burn CPG. We might've had two at that point in time. By the time we got to deployment number two in 2013, I think there were 20 plus CPGs, clinical practice guidelines, and they were phenomenal resources that kept us all on the same sheet of music as to what the goals of care were. That has been a recurrent lesson that I've learned over my career. When you provide a common mental model for care teams, the care gets better. Why? Because it gives you a norm, an average for most of the patients and allows you more time to think about the patients that are outside of the norm. You have an 80% solution for everybody. And then you have the 20% of people that you really have to figure out why they aren't matching the clinical practice guideline and what's different about them. And, uh, and that really gives you a lot more breathing room to, to focus on those complex, slightly different patients. The biggest difference between the hospital, though, was the way that the British enter into a war zone. I mean, granted, they have a whole bunch of differences between their, the size of their military, the size of their medical footprint. They only have one role three facility that is deployed at, at that given time. But before we deployed with that hospital, all the U.S. contingent goes to a place that they call Hospex, the hospital exercise. And that's at Queen Elizabeth II Barracks in Strensel, England, just south of York. And they run the entire hospital through a a three-day simulation where they inject somewhere around 300 or so 
casualties or patients into a hospital that has been set up to match the exact footprint of the Bastion Roll 3. When you went to the training, you were training in the environment and in the exact footprint that you would be practicing your care in once you got deployed. It was kind of phenomenal. You knew where everything was. You knew where all the, all the resources were. You knew where all the equipment was. You knew where the bathrooms were. You knew where everything was before you ever got to your deployed location. Now, that's a fairly unique, I think, setting. They've been there for many, many years. But at the same time, it's a fascinating concept to think that you can train to the standard with which you're going to be delivering care before ever getting into that operational environment. And what they did actually is the hospital went there two other times prior to our arrival, the American contingent. They would go as, a, as an initial assessment. That field hospital goes an initial assessment with their leadership team. It's all the same docs, nurses, techs, medics, leadership. They would get feedback on their first visit. They would get an opportunity to go away and train for a period of time, kind of during their the reset phase. And they would come back for another follow-up and they would need to essentially get closer to hitting all the marks and they would get some very specific feedback. And in fact, our hospital, the commander of our hospital prior to our deployment, when they came back at their second validation exercise, they didn't do so well and the commander was relieved. And they brought in a commander that had previously gone to Bastion and, and kind of knew the ropes. And his job was to, to get the the hospital in order prior to the third validation, which they call hospics. And theoretically, if you don't pass hospics, you don't get deployed. Now, to my knowledge, they've never actually not deployed one of their units. But at the same time, the pressure that is on to be able to do the care that needs to be done correctly was really phenomenal. So they were a well-oiled machine, much more so than I think some of our, our role three facilities reach prior to our deployments. It was a great experience to learn the impact of high fidelity simulation, very, very meaningful, impactful feedback for improvement and the ability to then validate your hospital, your care delivery team and how you do it in such a way you have tremendous confidence when you actually get to do the real thing. I mean, the day you show up at Bastion Roll 3, you're essentially ready to do mass casualties and to do really complex patient care in ways that I don't think that some of our system is prepared to do in, in, in the past and certainly in the, in the present. Well, our paths have crossed at Madigan, where I was a general surgery resident and you were a staff critical care physician. Your story about the Kool-Aid really struck home with me because I, I remember actually several patients we would operate on and in the operating room, the staff physicians would say, well, there's no surgical bleeding. So we just need to get them to the ICU and resuscitate them. But the interesting thing about that time period is that I started in 2007, you were in Iraq in 2008, then you go to Bastion in 2013, and that's when I finished general surgery, and the resuscitation had changed. Shortly thereafter, you then go to the U.S. Army Institute for Surgical Research, San Antonio, and you'd had these experiences with the changes in resuscitation. What are the valuable lessons you learned in civilian medical care that you took out of those deployments or that you picked up? after you had become a more seasoned critical care physician after two deployments and five to 10 years of practice? I think there are, there's obviously different types of docs that are, that are tracked as different fields of medicine and different ways of thinking about medicine. And there are, I think I've always been one of the, one of the clinicians that focus a little bit less on the therapeutics and a little bit more on the, how we deliver patient care. And I would say that the the lessons that I took back from 
those deployments and the time actually that I spent even before I got to the burn center down in the in the San Antonio surgical ICU, surgical trauma ICU, neurotrauma ICU, all during that period of time, were really more about how we work as a team and how we deliver patient care as a group than they were about specific therapeutics that that kind of changed over that period of time. So some examples. When I was at Madigan, my first foray into thinking about using checklists on a daily basis to track what we do at the bedside. And what we learned from that experience, some of those are still ongoing. We learned, first of all, that everybody hates checklists and that there, there are pains to talk about them every single day. Nobody likes to be forced to talk about certain aspects of patient care every single day. But what those did is they, they provided that same common mental model that the CPGs did. They provide a warm base, a common approach to dealing with critically ill patients, or really any patient for that matter, that the whole team can understand. And when the team is firing on all the cylinders and they're working together, the routine becomes easy. I was actually listening to, to one of your earlier podcasts with Matt Hepper, and he was talking about General Perner and Operation Warp Speed. And in Perna's, in Perna's book, basically, Perna is a phenomenal leader, General Perna this is. And one of the things he says is make the routine easy. He says that all the time, make the routine easy. And in critical care, there's nothing that's easy in general. I mean, it's the sickest of the sick. They're, all the patients are trying to, assuming you're in a really sick ICU, all the patients are trying to die on you. There's constant change. You're always looking for the next problem that's going to occur. So how do you make that routine easy? And you make that routine easy by coming up with standard operating procedures, clinical practice guidelines, checklists. And when everybody can recognize the norms, it's much, much easier. When it's easy to recognize the normal, what's expected, it's much, much easier to recognize the unexpected as well. And it allows the team to just function more effectively together. And I think that particularly in the intensive care unit, but I think really for almost any patient care environment, having those, those expected norms, it's not it's not a weakness to have expectations. It's a, it's a value to have expectations for how you're going to deliver good patient care, recognizing that they're not rigid rigid rules, but they are guidelines. They are guideposts that allow you to do the normal, the routine easily. I think that's probably one of the biggest lessons that I took away from both the deployments that I was on. I think the British do this very well. They're very humble in this respect. And I think we were able to bring some of those expectations back, certainly to the to Madigan, to the burn center, and I think to some extent to the surgical ICUs at, at BAMC. So I think that's interesting that that you really were focusing on the how do we provide the care rather than what we do. We use tourniquets, we use whole blood, whatever. And one of the things that you're known for is really being ahead of the curve with telemedicine, teleconsultation, telecritical care. Tell us a little bit about how that came about and what it led to. I think the journey towards telemedicine and technology, medical technology, medical advanced technology actually began with a checklist back at Madigan. Because what I realized is that that daily checklist allowed me to collect data every single day about every single patient in the ICU and to be able to trend that over time. So if you ask the same question every single day, that's a pretty good process that you can follow and see whether or not you're getting better at that particular process. And um, interestingly, when we brought that same capability to San Antonio, 
We learned that checklists change what we talk about on a daily basis. So if you insert certain checklist items, you can actually change culture in an ICU. One example of that was hand washing. So if you ask the question every single day, did you catch somebody today that didn't wash their hands entering into a patient room? In the beginning, the first few weeks of that, everybody's like, I'm not going to say anything about that. And then as you start going on, somebody catches the attending doing it and you praise them for it. And all of a sudden, people are starting to catch people identifying people who are making human mistakes, not intentionally so, but then you actually get better care out of that. That kind of data-driven process that actually changes culture started making me think about how you can you can use data to, to actually affect teamwork and how you can use technology resources to affect how we deliver patient care, honestly. One of those early projects then became asking the question of what data is important to have on a bedside monitor. And to this day, there's very little actual evidence as to what you put on a bedside monitor. And we started learning about how to create some of the visualizations around bedside monitor, the electronic medical record, how to make that more efficient and effective for not documenting in the patient record, which is what the electronic medical record is designed to do, maybe poorly, but really how do we use the technology to enhance the way that we deliver patient care? And what you learn is that when you see data the right way, it's easier to make a decision. Surprise, surprise. And if you make that data more available to other humans, then they can help you make those decisions faster. Fast forward a little ways and uh, you get into a bone that Kevin Chung also threw me once upon a time, which was I have this, this crazy guy who is interested in doing telemedicine with very little resources, basically with with a with a mobile device and would you like to be a part of that project and we we submitted that project to the amen advanced medical technology initiative and AMTI and didn't get picked up and after that we said okay well maybe we can revise that and i actually started doing that revision with jeff de la volpe who was an, an air force critical care guy and together we resubmitted a, another version of that that AMTI. And it got picked up initially to do that type of support to a small hospital in the military, small MTF. And this was 2015. And it was the same year that the MHSRS conference had a visitor from 3rd Special Forces Group from Jamie Reesberg and, and Doug Powell. And they asked to have a meeting with the Institute of Surgical Research to talk about this new thing called prolonged field care, this challenge that they were having in Africa. They couldn't move patients fast enough. They couldn't get patients or casualties to surgical support within the golden hour because of all the evacuation challenges they have in the very large continent of Africa and the challenges of getting overflight privileges, depending on which country they're in, it was just very, very difficult. They presented the core components of good prolonged field care. And one of those happened to be telemedicine because it's impossible to have a clinician on the ground taking care of a of a patient for a long period of time, know everything that there is that they need to know to manage that patient ideally. I mean, if you think about any critically ill patients or really any patient in the hospital, if they're there long enough, we all get a consult. We all talk to some other clinician in the hospital at some point in time, whether it's a colleague in your same specialty because you just want to bounce something off of them, or it's some other subspecialty service, ID, endo, whoever it may be. It just impossible to actually train any human to know all that there is to know in order to manage a casualty, especially a critically ill casualty, over many, many hours. This is very interesting to me because one of the guys we just interviewed actually mentioned your name, and it was Sean Keenan. And what he said that 
one of the difficult things was when they trained the special operations medics in training, they expected them to kind of know everything and know the answers. And that's how they were really evaluated in training. How did you find breaking that culture to say, you know, he said, I'm an ER doc. I'm calling consults all day long. These guys need to do it. How did you overcome that with these guys who are think they're supposed to know everything? Fundamentally, the group that was asking for the support. So Sean was the chair of the SOMA, Special Operations Medical Association, Prolonged Field Care Working Group. They, they defined the skill set that you need to have because that leadership group knew this truth to be, to be evident. They knew that they had to get help. So the first thing was they had to put something in the place that allows them to even call for help. So in the training space, if there's no way to ask for help, if there's nobody to ask for help from, then there's no way to actually start training for them to ask for help. I mean, I guess you could call your battalion surgeon or your, your next higher up, but oftentimes they're not the subspecialty service that you actually need. They've done most of the training for you that you need to have. Even to some extent, a Sean or a Jamie they know their specialty as well as they can. They don't know infectious disease. They don't know everything about critical care. They don't know everything about trauma surgery, for example. So you always they knew they needed help if the medic was calling them. So they needed some other resource in order to make specialty expertise available. So what we did is we set up something very, very simple. We actually called it the Virtual Critical Care Consultation Service. Thought about during that same MHS conference, what do we call this damn thing? And, and we called it VC3. And Different, I would say, than, than the vast majority of how the military rolls out programs. Most of the time, we have this great idea, and then we say, we're going to do it. Go do it. And everybody's expected to just do it. We said, we're going to start with training. And this was really the soft teams that said, we got to start this process in the training environment. And what we did is we just made ourselves available through a phone number. We dedicated a, literally a phone on a nurse's station in the burn center that had a call forwarding button on it. So you had to go to that phone, dial in the phone number and hit the call forwarding button and then put a piece of tape over the phone so nobody picked it up and, and changed the call forwarding and actually disabled it. So that phone was now dedicated to call forwarding if it received an, a call to that phone number. And it would call forward whoever was on call. And there was a handful of us. And we just kept rotating call. So anytime they had a training event, the soft medics were presented with cases that were well beyond their scope of practice. That was the other component of this. You had to have them forced to say, I don't know, and then realize that they could try to jerry-rig a solution or they could actually call and ask for some help. And they were just encouraged by the team that was at the SOCMIS at the time, the schoolhouse, as well as other training venues to just pick up the phone and make a phone call. And they would call us. And what we also realized is that this we weren't the first version of this, by the way. They had actually tried to purchase this service from some wilderness medicine, telemedicine consultation service. And a couple of things happened with that, that kind of contract effort. The civilian world would say, you got to evacuate that patient. That's outside of my scope of practice. That's outside of my license. I can't tell you to do whatever it is I think you should do right now. You need to evacuate the patient. They would just give up. And that wasn't a good paradigm. And they also had the problem of having to go through multiple levels of communication to get to the experts. So the soft medic would call up a call center, the call center would take the history, then the call center would decide who they needed to talk to, then they would call that person for the medic who needed to talk to the doctor, and then the medic would finally get connected to the doctor and have to explain the whole story again. And 15 or 20 minutes later, they finally had some answers. 
by creating a direct line to a caregiver, especially a military caregiver that was willing to answer their questions and help them no matter what problem they presented us with. We never said no. And we would never say, you have to just evacuate the patient. You have to take that risk on your own. I can't help you. We always just problem solve with them. And those, in this case, it was mostly 18 Deltas in the early days. They, they were just very appreciative of working through problems, just like any other clinician would be. I have a problem. I don't know what I should do. You call up a friend, you call up a colleague and you say, hey, what should I do? And the colleagues that are pissed off and frustrated that you're consulting them, you don't call them back because that's not, you're, you're calling them because you're looking for help. And the colleagues that pick up the phone and say, hey, yeah, I'm happy to help you. Let's work through this problem together. We'll talk about it. Yeah, that's not a big challenge for me, but I'm recognizing it's hard for you. We'll work through it together. And there's no judgment that goes along with that. And you know, we started developing this process. We would talk to them on every one of these training events. And, and the word spread that through the ranks, basically, that you could trust the guys on the other end of this line. And, and that element of trust that was developed through training, repetitive training over and over and over again, is really, I think, what the secret was to enabling that program to, to flourish and continue on. So how, how did that evolve into Advisor? So this is now, again, circa 2015. And there's actually more than one effort evolving to, to deliver this type of service. The other, the other real primary effort was TS3. And I will probably get this wrong, but it's synchronous teleconsultation for special operations forces. There's another S in there. At any rate, that was Sean Alderman and Dan York, so fifth group. So our primary customers was third group. Uh, fifth group was developing a tech-heavy platform that allowed them to do video consultation from their FOBs, from their small locations. Ours, the VC3, was primarily phone-based. So you could call from anywhere. And if it happened to have a smartphone, we could do a video consultation. But their primary target there was uh, a video consultation. And the remote experts were largely at Eisenhower Army Medical Center, and they had to carry around a dedicated iPad. And again, the call volume was not very large because their primary mission set was not training. Their primary mission set was real world. So they had a few consults. They, they did some great work. And then like many problems in the military, the technology started to fail because somebody changed an IP address or a firewall, and they couldn't actually start the video consultation. So it degraded back into oftentimes a phone call and then the struggle to try to get the video to start to work. And actually, you mentioned Sean earlier. It was Sean's genius that said, no, you must use a phone call. You can only use a phone. He, he constrained our mindset. You have to have a phone, something that is very reliable in almost all settings. And that was useful in that when we started having these conversations with how do we de-conflict these two programs? How do we make sure that both the, that the soft community knows who to call? We were able to show and to demonstrate with actually evidence because we were collecting our call volume that we had a much higher call volume and we could always escalate to a video. So the other component that was also very helpful in this early phase is another AMTI. So for those who don't know the AMED and now just the Advanced Medical Technologies Initiative, that's actually a, a sponsorship program that's run by my current organization, Tatcher. That program, we applied for additional funding to kind of continue this effort for another year. And the target there was adding additional resiliency to the call system. So instead of just having a phone on a desk, we actually invested in an automatic call distribution system. So you could call up a, a digital operator and hit a button and, and get to the doctor that you wanted to speak to. Much more reliable than calling up a phone that may or may not have been taken off the hook. And also we were able to build in some redundancy. So if the, the first doctor didn't pick up the phone, then it would automatically call a second doctor. If they, the second doctor didn't pick up the phone, it would automatically call an emergency room. And the emergency room was pretty reliable. 
So building in that trustworthy reliableness was, was really important to the second phase of things. We talked to the fifth group team and we really negotiated with them what the right strategy was. And we, we came up with the, the concept of combining everything around this ACD system and expanding it to all special operations forces, a single phone number to call whenever you needed help. And when we did that and used the ACD system, we started getting live phone calls from around the world. And you know that, that call volume is just steadily ticked up even today, it continues to, to grow almost every month. Not usually around critical care anymore. So the original five were critical care, trauma care, dermatology, peds, and the emergency department. And now it includes ID, veterinary care, C. Bernie support, orthopedic surgery, kind of the whole gamut of subspecialty services that you might need when you're in an employed environment, the people that are calling the system are certainly not only medics anymore. We get phone calls from role threes, role twos, PAs, medics. It's it's, it's pretty amazing to see how the program has grown over the, the last seven years as a, as a whole and as an advisor system now for the last five years. I think this is absolutely fascinating because I just returned from a deployment and I was at the theater field hospital in Baghdad. And I think a lot of people don't quite appreciate the vast quantity of consultations that come in for the full spectrum of medical problems. I mean, there's no way that a single primary care physician can know how to take care of every situation. And you compound that even with trying to take care of local nationals who maybe can't cross international borders and have to stay where they are and get that information. And and that leads us into what you had mentioned earlier, where you said you now work for TATRIC, which is the Telemedicine and Advanced Technology Research. And as of March of 2020, you are the commander of that unit. Tell us what the roles of TATRIC play in supporting military medicine and the warfighters. Oh, one of, I guess, my favorite topics right now is the Telemedicine and Advanced Technologies Research Center. TATRIC has evolved over a long history that began in the early 90s as the Medical Advanced Technology Management Officer, MATMO, became TATRIC in 1998. And many people don't probably don't appreciate the role that TATRIC has played historically in our ability to deliver telemedicine kind of across the globe in many ways. Almost all PAC systems, the servers that we use to do teleradiology or read radiology images at a distance began in MATMO in the early 1990s. And the American Telemedicine Association really had much of its roots in a collaboration with the early Tatrick in the in the late 90s and the early 2000s. And it probably wouldn't be where it's at if it didn't have that relationship once upon a time. Tatrick has undergone a, a tremendous metamorphosis over the last probably five to 10 years now. 10 years ago, Tatrick was primarily funded by congressional special interests and was, a, was almost entirely an execution management office. Most of those functions have been transitioned over to the Congressionally Directed Medical Research and Development Program, or CDMRP. And uh, now we are we are focused on doing research that is designed to to advance medical technologies for the warfighter. We became a command under the mission statement of, of fusing data, humans, and machines into solutions that optimize warfighter performance and casualty care. And the way we think about that is using technologies to enhance caregiver performance, so deliver better patient care. An increase in capability and capacity by taking advantage of really the, the human technology team, such that any individual is able to do essentially more than they would otherwise be able to do. So practice beyond their scope of practice. And when you can practice beyond your scope of practice, you increase the whole capacity of the system. And I'll give some examples of that. So if you have a team and you have the ability to deliver telemedicine to that team, 
as an example, during the COVID-19 pandemic, and that team happened to be in a rural hospital in the middle of the United States, and they have a referral center that's a tertiary care hospital that was full and is, is continually getting patients from all their feeder systems. And you can help that rural hospital manage a critically ill patient at that rural hospital. That's one less patient that has to be transferred to that tertiary care medical center. It may not even be a, in the last couple of years, it may not even be a COVID patient. So similarly in our military system, just because you can't see me, but putting in quotes, a lesser trained, a lower scoped care provider, whether that be a combat lifesaver or a medic or a PA or a primary care doctor or whoever it may be, you have a limited scope of practice. And when you can talk to an expert all of a sudden, that expert can help coach you through care that you would not otherwise be probably comfortable providing and certainly maybe not proficient in providing without that type of resource. And when you do that, all of a sudden, that patient's starting to get not just the minimum amount of care, but they're getting better care wherever they are. And now we have another node in our healthcare system that that care is, is better at. And that Ultimately, when you multiply that across all the other care locations that we might be able to think about, can increase the capacity of the entire system to manage casualties across the system. So I think the, the ability to deliver technology to a care provider, as long as it doesn't inhibit or restrict their ability to perform their job, and there's plenty of examples of that, that enables the, the warfighter to do more essentially with less. And that is, by and large, the role of, of Tatrick is figuring out how to, to create technology solutions that work with the care team in order to accomplish that mission statement. So you mentioned throughout your career, you've been very data-driven. And one of the things that we're seeing in other areas, not just medicine, is artificial intelligence and using that technology to look at the data and help humans maybe make the decisions that they need to make. What kind of things are going on at Tatrick looking towards the future of even enhancing this? One of the fundamental misunderstandings across the medical system right now, and certainly within the DOD healthcare system, is that we have the data we need to, to perform to create artificial intelligence. And, and we have some data that will help us create models of what machines can see or perceive and those models can inform the machine to make better decisions. Great examples of that are our radiology images or pathology slides that have been digitized. Lots and lots of data out there. And there's going to be some tremendous breakthroughs with using that type of information to inform medical decision-making, genomics, proteomics, huge data sets. But we fundamentally don't have any data sets, zero data sets, around delivering patient care at a bedside especially in, in the military operational medicine setting. Number one, we just don't do very much combat casualty care. It's just rare in the, in the scheme of how much data is needed to generate artificial intelligence. If you think about self-driving cars, they drive hundreds of thousands and millions of miles before they have any, any level of self-driving capability. Millions. It's just the, the scale difference is hard to comprehend sometimes. So in order for us to develop the type of artificial intelligence that people are interested in, we have to start using our tools that actually help caregivers provide patient care as soon as possible to collect that data that can then inform a future artificial intelligence system that actually might help us deliver better patient care. And what I mean by that is we have to really deeply understand with data 
passive data collection. So we're from video, from audio, from movement, from physiology, the way that we assess a patient, what is wrong with a patient, the way that we decide what to do for a patient. And that way is oftentimes a time-based thing. It's also oftentimes contextual. What treatment is most appropriate given that assessment and that decision about what needs to be done? And that all has to be done in the context of care. So synchronizing that care across the care continuum and within also within the context of the resources that are available. And if we're not measuring all those pieces and trying to understand the patterns that are within them as soon as possible, then we don't really ever get to the artificial intelligence that our strategy documents and our desire for a future fight is trying to achieve. So in many ways, that is really the Patrick mission right now is starting to develop the methodologies for collecting that type of data. And we think about it across three care paradigms. One is in the lab where you can do some of our methodology developments, test different sensors, figure out what the minimum data set, all those kinds of pieces are. The other place then is to take that data collection methodology and do it during our training environment, our high fidelity training environments. And in those high fidelity training environments, we did lots of sets and reps, but we have to collect those sets and reps just like we would do in the real world environment and just like we would do in in that laboratory environment. And that core data set then translates across the lab environment to the training environment. And we use those rare circumstances where we actually provide real combat casualty care across a care continuum to actually validate the models that you develop from the, the laboratory space, the training space, and then ultimately use in the real world space. And again, I think that our first, the first, the first fully developed clinical decision support aid is actually telemedicine. We don't call it that, but we are allowing a, a local caregiver to collect data, feed it into a remote or an autonomous decision-making authority, i.e. a human, a remote expert. That human then assesses that information, spits out that data back to a local caregiver with a decision and says, do this. And that local caregiver then actuates that treatment or that therapy for that decision maker. Let's say it's an OODA loop. And the more we start replicating that, the more we can start thinking about passively doing other steps in that process to give the information to the remote caregiver or to make those decisions somewhat autonomously with AI. And in that journey, we can eventually cut the cord of telemedicine. As a critical care physician during the COVID-19 pandemic, you undoubtedly saw and appreciate the lack of resources that faced the nation during the surges in patients. And you also helped form the National Telecritical Care Network. Resource limitation is one of the hallmarks as well of battlefield medical care. You had made a correlation about rural medicine earlier that that's one less patient you'd have to treat in the COVID-19 pandemic type scenarios. Tell us first about the National Telecritical Care Network, and then do you see that there's a military application to combat casualty care in regards to that? Yeah, 100%. So I may get in trouble a little bit for, for saying this explicitly, but you know, COVID, we intentionally sought out COVID and thought about using technology for COVID response as a model for delivering that same type of response during large-scale combat operations. So in our minds, the COVID pandemic and large numbers of casualties and resource-constrained environments was exactly the same care context that we, we needed to develop technologies for for the large-scale combat operations of our, of our potential future. And the, the Netson sounds like Jetson National Emergency Telecritical Care Network also sounds like Jetson, the Joint Telecritical Care Network. You may see some similarities between all of those. 
But the Netson was an intergovernment effort between the military, so the Medical Research and Development Command, MRDC, my parent command, and the Department of Health and Human Services Assistant Secretary for Preparedness Response, or the ASPR. And both entities sponsored this work in order to create a light, in this case, telecritical care system. Telecritical care was just what COVID needed because of the critical illness that COVID produces, but it's really a very flexible telemedicine system that can be used for many, many use cases. The concept of using a cell phone, a network-enabled mobile device, as a fundamental component of a network of care providers and remote experts that can provide expertise from anywhere to any point that needs that help essentially having a critical care doctor in your pocket or a rapid response team wherever you are at any point in time was the fundamental minimum viable product for the National Emergency Telecritical Care Network effort. The other components that went along with this development were it, it couldn't be an electronic medical record. It wasn't designed to tie in to any specific electronic medical record because you know when we started this early in the pandemic, but also thinking about using it for an all-hazards approach, not just uh, pandemic disaster response, but hurricane disaster response, earthquake disaster response, whatever. We knew that in those circumstances, the power, the hospital, the network that you would usually rely upon oftentimes fails. And you don't have access to electronic medical record servers. So you have to have the ability to stand up a de novo electronic medical record around any virtual environment, essentially instantaneously. So that concept of being able to deliver and create a, a care space rapidly within hours, if it was in a hotel or gymnasium or a sports facility, was at the at the root of what Netson was designed to be able to do. Managing casualties or patients within that network. So the patient regulating function was also a key feature. And then making it easy to document with it was also a key feature. And I did say that, easy to document. It's not an electronic medical record. It's designed to capture voice to text type it in really quickly, send a text message to a remote expert. And that became the documentation that was associated with this telemedicine platform. Many times the remote expert did a lot of that documentation. So the local caregiver didn't even need to. They call you up. We'd say, this is what my problem is. When you're the remote expert, you document that. And now you have a record of what's going on with that individual patient. So this effort to create rapidly accessible, scalable telemedicine was what the National Emergency Telecritical Care Network was designed to do. Over the past two years, we provided somewhere around, I think, 50,000 coverage hours to these little tiny hospitals across America and 61 facilities, 18 different states and territories, all without previous relationships. So they would call you up one day and you would be trying to turn on telecritical care the next day. And the fastest we ever went live was within two hours. And usually the longest it took to go live was related to credentialing. As soon as we were credentialed, we were ready to go. And some of the places took a month or two to actually do that credentially. So not, not so much an emergency anymore at that point in time, but we still try to work with them to show them what the art of possible was for, for getting access to remote expertise whenever they needed it. And to a T, all these hospitals that actually use the services, the clinicians were, were usually primary care providers, in some cases, nurse practitioners who you can go to our website and see some of the anecdotes they said, I don't know what I would have done without access to a remote expert. It's very similar to the kind of feedback we get from 18 Deltas. I don't know what I would have done taking care of this patient with severe ARDS from their blast lung or from their COVID without the resource of a remote expert to help provide some of that, that oversight. 
sometimes, and I will say that majority of time, actually, that I don't know what I would have done as a, as a bit of a falsity in that they're actually doing all the best things that they can possibly do. And what the remote expert does is provide reassurance that you're doing all the best things that you possibly can. And I think that's just another incredibly important lesson that's come out of the telemedicine journey is that oftentimes we don't actually provide a whole lot of new insights. We just tell that local caregiver that they're doing the best they can. And that reassurance allows them to sleep at night. That reassurance allows them to not regret the care that they're providing. That reassurance that we give, hopefully, it may prevent them from developing burnout and PTSD. We know that all the clinicians that are listening to this know that we fear doing the wrong thing. We fear missing the, that critical care element that we just didn't think about. And sometimes when we ask for help from others, it's, it's really to make sure that we didn't miss anything. Advisor, VC3 before that, the global teleconsultation portal, Netson, all provide that service to the caregivers to make sure that they are getting the help that they need in order to optimize the care for the patient that's in front of them. With that reassurance, they can then focus their attention on the next critically ill patient. We're often paralyzed by the patient that's in front of us. And until you can release and you can kind of move on from that, your thought process, your, your effort is geared toward managing that person that you can't let go of. And it may, they may not always be critically ill. They may just be consuming, where we've all had that experience. And when you talk to another colleague and you're able to just consult with them and hear their perspective, sometimes it's just a matter of getting it out of ourselves that allows us to realize, okay, we're doing okay. We can move on. One of the things I've discovered being in the military for over 30 years is that you have to be pretty good at acronyms. And it seems just talking to you that telemedicine, you have to be extra good at coming up with acronyms. And I like the one that you used was Jetsons. And so I'm not going to use it as an acronym, but like the cartoon, the Jetsons, what I want you to do is look in the crystal ball and say, 20 years from now, what is something that we would be doing providing care in 20 years that right now at this moment seems absolutely no way? So I think there's probably several things. Some of them are not related to my area of expertise. I think the areas of, of biotechnology, in particular, genetic modifications, some of those areas of research and work are, are going to radically change the delivery of healthcare. From a, a digital technology space, one of my mentors, General Mike Talley, once said that if we get this right from a technology, a digital health standpoint, we will change force structure. And I think that's absolutely true. If we can start to collect the information about individuals and understand their current status, whether they are optimized, healthy, just healthy and ready, degraded, or actually a casualty. On a continuous basis, the system just residently knows where all the humans are within that network and how they are doing, what their, what their health condition is within that network. And then we can reach out to those individuals with health care, maybe it's preventive health care, that can actually push them more towards an optimal status then all of a sudden we ha start having fewer casualties. We just have fewer health problems because we're actively engaged and we're pushing forward. And it may not entirely be with telemedicine, although you see many telemedicine efforts that are doing that today. They're looking at wearable data and we are looking at survey data. You can send surveys out to individuals on a daily basis. You can say, hey, how are you doing? And you can engage with them earlier. And I think as that journey starts, it continues, we will start changing how people access healthcare. And one of the things I love about telemedicine is that in many ways, when you start thinking about 
the journey of the hospital system, hospitals began as a way to consolidate our expertise. They began as a, as a, as a place where we would put all the doctors together so that the patients could go one place to find us all rather than having to the doctors all go to the individual patients' homes. And it wasn't until we had started subspecializing that we had to group us all together and the patients couldn't stay home anymore. And if anybody's ever spent a night in a hospital, we all know that spending time in a hospital is miserable. You don't sleep. You don't eat the same. We constantly are bothering you. There's all these beeps and sounds and alarms. You're not in your own bed. They're terrible healing environments. We don't, we don't do well. It's just not as comfortable in a hospital. And if you put all these telemedicine pieces together, this remote monitoring capability, and we didn't talk about this aspect of some of the work that we did with, with our COVID response, but we spent a, a significant amount of effort on connecting remote controlled medical devices to the telemedicine network so that you can then remotely control a ventilator. You can remotely control an IV pump. You can remotely control a monitor. You can eventually, we can tie in, we don't do this yet. So everything I just said, by the way, is current. we're currently doing now and working through FDA system to allow that to become available for at least a disaster scenario. But in the ability to tie in other things like dialysis and ECMO and whatever the next mechanical therapeutic may be, and to be able to do that from any location to any location allows us to start thinking about distributing healthcare to more maybe comfortable places for patients like their home. And I think everyone's heard about hospital home type concepts, but to be able to actually deliver acute care to a home using these types of technologies, exactly what we're talking about trying to do on a battlefield in the back of an evacuation vehicle or in, in a role two. And by adding this type of technology, Again, you change the force structure. Why? Because now all of a sudden you don't need maybe as many nurses or as many emergency care doctors or as many critical care doctors for CCAT or as many critical care doctors in a role three. And the list goes on. And I think another component of that, this robotic or automated task delivery, if you think about robotic surgery, the ability to do that with telerobotic surgery starts changing further the, the force structure of how we think about utilizing surgery. Think about doing a role four facility, managing all the casualties that are coming back from the war with telerobotic surgery or telerobotic assist to a primary surgeon. If you have a telerobotic assistant, you could potentially half the number of surgeries you need in a room for any one particular surgery. It's a little different than doing the microsurgery with the robots, but if you scale that up and they're you have a remote expert that's helping that local surgeon doing half of the surgery with them, with the robot, then you improve your force structure by 50%. And that 50% then can actually be deployed. And now you, all of a sudden you have half a dozen more roll twos, right? And more capacity in those forward operating environments. So I think the combination of digital health solutions that can remotely monitor people and care environments passively, plus elements of telemedicine. You don't always have to be connected, but the data gets sent and you can understand it at Echelon with some of these robotic assist autonomous support solutions with robotics for surgery, for procedures, for evacuation is going to radically change our force structure in another 10 to 15 years. So let's fast forward even farther into the future, 50, 100 years, and the history books are looking back and the paragraph or the page or the chapter about Jeremy Pamplin, someone in the future is reading it, what would you want them to read about? It's a humbling question to ask because what do you want to be kind of remembered for? And what do you think is the important parts of, of a career or a life to remember? 
And for me, and I think this has been solidified more than anything else over the last couple of years of COVID, for me, it's really about inclusiveness. One of my favorite sayings, it's not uncommon, but is is the, the African proverb of, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. And when you pull team members into anything you are doing, and, and there's many examples of this, the advisor program would not exist if we did not bring together STS3 and VC3 in a collegial collaborative way and give everybody the credit for it. It's not one person's solution that built that. It is the collective need for that capability and multiple people working together that delivered it. Same thing with the Joint Telecritical Care Network. But the Army, in other words, Madigan and me said, we're going to be the first and we're going to be the only. And we didn't work really, really closely with the Navy and ultimately give the primary mission away to the Navy. Then we'd still be fighting about it today. And instead, we have a joint telecritical care network that has been invested in by the DHA and that is now available and growing for all of the military health systems. Those types of collaborative endeavors um, are always better than trying to, to do it alone or to try to protect something that you need to get credit for. I didn't say this, but it's one of my favorite things. It's really not about the tech. It's about the team. It's about how we incorporate that technology with, with the care team. And it's we've we've studied this many, many times. You people say AI is better. If you study AI compared to the human, sometimes it's better. But if you study the AI with the human, it's always better than the AI or the human alone. The team is always a better approach. And uh, it's easy, it's really easy to get sucked back into the technology space. My team does it sometimes too. Like we just it's easy to make it about the tech. And it can never be about the tech. It's not the tech is not the hard part. It's figuring out how the tech works with our medical care team. That is the most important part. And if I wanted people to remember me for something, it's uh, don't remember Jeremy Pamplin. Remember that we collectively created solutions that allowed better care to a warfighter or to their family members. We've been speaking with Dr. Jeremy Pamplin on War Docs podcast. Jeremy, thanks again for sharing your experiences and insights with us, and thank you for your service. Thank you both for for having me. It's been been an honor and a pleasure speaking with both of you again. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of War Docs, the military medicine podcast. We sure hope you enjoyed it. We invite you to follow and subscribe to our show on whatever platform you consume your podcast so you don't miss an episode. Please rate and review this podcast and share our show with your contacts on social media. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Find out more information about our show and our guests and how to become a member of Team Wardocs on our website, wardocspodcast.com. That's wardocspodcast, one word, dot com. Thanks so much for your support. If you like war stories and medical drama, War Docs has you covered. Spread the word.